Many of you would know the name John Bunyan. I mention him fairly frequently because many of us have read at least parts of the Pilgrim's Progress. He was a lay preacher at first in England, in a place called Bedford in the mid-1600s. But he was imprisoned in 1660, just before the Act of Uniformity in 1662, for preaching in a nonconformist church called the Bedford Meeting. And it was at that time gathering at a farm outside of Bedford. And at this time, John Bunyan would spend 12 years in prison for the first time. He was then later in life arrested again and spent another six months in jail. But he lived through times of peace and toleration for the church and also times of persecution and clamping down on the church. And many of us, like I said, know his book, Pilgrim's Progress. But afterward, right at the end of his life, he wrote an interesting book called The Antichrist and His Ruin. And this was an explanation, according to his view, of the Antichrist spoken of in the New Testament, which often animates earthly governments to persecute the church and brings in false teaching to seduce people. But he also speaks of its ultimate ruin at the hand of Jesus Christ. We know that the church of Jesus Christ has enemies. Just as Joshua's Israel had enemies, as we see in the book of Joshua, we see kings and nations and cities and peoples raging against Israel in Joshua. And we see the same thing throughout the church age. The book of Revelation in particular describes this aggression of the enemies of God against the church. It describes them in symbols like the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot of Babylon, who are directed by the dragon, who we know is Satan himself, that ancient serpent. William Hendrickson explains that these are symbols of anti-Christian government persecution and anti-Christian religion and anti-Christian seduction. But as Revelation records, and I just read in chapter 19, all these enemies of the church are swiftly brought to destruction by the coming of Christ. And they are thrown into everlasting destruction along with all those who follow them. In Joshua here, we have a picture of the downfall of God's enemies, the enemies of the, of the people of God, and Joshua's victory over them. This gives us a clear parallel to the victory of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look this morning at what Joshua does to his enemies, the victory, the, the conquering that he has over them. And we'll relate this to the reign of Jesus Christ. What does Joshua do to his enemies in this passage? We see three things. He crushes them underfoot, he devotes them to destruction, and he takes their land. Number one, he crushes them underfoot. As we go through here, we're going to be taking a, a broad view of these chapters, and so I'll just kind of summarize as we go along. But we see this first in Joshua 10, 16 and following. The enemies of God's people are crushed underfoot. We see here the coalition of five kings that came against Israel in southern Canaan 
are crushed underfoot. These kings, we read in verse 16, they fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machida. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machida. Joshua and Israel, of course, had just chased the, the people of South Canaan all the way from Gibeon down to Machida, at least 40 kilometers, as God moved heaven and earth to help them in this fight. And these kings, who were motivated by fear originally to attack Israel, as we read last time, now they're cowering in fear in a cave, trying to get away from Joshua's army. Well, Joshua tells his men to roll stones in front of the cave to trap them in verse 18. And then he goes about the rest of the fight. He tells them to keep pursuing their enemies, verse 19. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And then after they had struck a great blow, we see in verse 20, they came back, verse 21, to the camp at Machida, where the kings were. And so God had helped them that day to strike down their enemies. And it says there in verse 21, not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel which I believe is a statement of how God protected them. Not even a word was allowed to assault them, much less a sword. And so they killed all their enemies there. They returned to this place where the kings were. And then we get in verses 22 to 27, a picture and promise of victory. Joshua brings out the kings and gives the people a picture, a vivid object lesson that he uses to illustrate for them a promise of God, really the promise of victory over all their enemies. So verse 24, you see, when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Now, this was a common symbol when a king would go out, when he would have a victory over enemies, he would put his foot on the neck of that other king in the ancient Near East that was a custom. It was a symbol that that people had been put in subjection to him. He had victory over them. And then Joshua here announces to them in verse 25, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. We've heard those words before in this book, haven't we? And then he says, For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So this picture of them standing on the necks of these kings was meant to remind them that God was fighting for them. And he would do this to all their enemies. Not a man would stand before them. He granted them assurance here of a total victory over all their enemies. Now friends, this is really a picture of Jesus' victory and the church's victory, isn't it? We see these wicked kings were threatened and fearful because of Israel. And although they attacked Israel for a short time, God opposed them till they ran to a cave for refuge. But their refuge could not even save them. And Joshua had victory over them. All throughout the Bible, we see this pattern. 
God's enemies arise, they attack, but they're fearful. They flee before the power of God, but they are not able to hide even in caves and hills and rocks and mountains. Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a vivid description of the day of judgment when God returns, vindicates his glory, and he destroys all who oppose him in pride and arrogance. Chapter 2 of Isaiah, starting verse 6, I want to read this. It says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock, and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountain and mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks, and the holes of the ground, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? We also see pictures of this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, if you would turn there. In verse 12 it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see, this is a picture in Joshua of judgment against really all the people of the earth. And on that day, no one will be able to escape. Even if they crawl into the caves or the mountains, they cannot escape the judgment of God. 
here we see rather it is better not to run away from God, but to run to God, to find refuge in him, to find his mercy and grace. We know of people even in Canaan who found that mercy, didn't they? Rahab and her family, the Gibeonites, few were saved, but they came to God for refuge, seeking mercy. And this brings out the question to all of you, what are you taking refuge in? Your own strength, some idols, some false hopes that you're trusting in, or are you taking refuge in Jesus Christ and in his blood before the cross where he took up upon himself the very judgment of God that you deserve? Any other refuge on the day of Christ will be absolutely useless. We see here the chiefs of Israel put their enemies underfoot as a pledge that God will give victory over all their enemies. And this also points us to the victory of Christ. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were put under the curse, it says there in verse 15 that God would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so from the beginning of time, there's been this conflict between the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom. But he said there that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. Really, this points us to the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross. 1 John 3, 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy Satan and his works. Well, how did he do that? Colossians chapter 2 tells us, verse 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And you have to note there the rulers and authorities Paul is speaking of are spiritual forces of evil. Jesus triumphed upon the cross. He triumphed over evil powers in the cross by disarming the one main weapon that they have, which is sin. He forgave us of all of our sins, canceled our sins upon the cross by his own lifeblood poured out for us. And so Satan has no power over us anymore. We're freed from the guilt and power of sin. As Psalm 110.1 prophesied, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. At the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, he began to rule and reign. He went back to the right hand of power where he rules with all authority in heaven and on earth. Hebrews 2, 8-9 tells us 
that we do not now see everything in subjection to him. But he is ruling in this way until he puts the last enemy under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 25 says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Some compare this to D-Day and V-Day in World War II. D-Day, of course, when they stormed those beaches was the decisive moment in the war, perhaps the, the turning point that really signaled victory for the Allies. And this is like the cross of Jesus Christ. God has won the decisive victory over evil and death and Satan and sin at the cross and the resurrection. Yet, there is still the cleanup to do. Like V-Day took another year till the war was fully ended. There is still a war going on right now between Christ and the church and, and Satan and our enemies. But he is reigning. And when he returns, as Revelation 18 to 20 shows the beast and the false prophet and Babylon the Great and Satan himself and all their followers will fall in a moment and be punished forever. And so we have assurance as Christians that Jesus has the victory and God will do thus to all our enemies. Paul could say to the Roman Christians in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, as Romans 8.37 says. Friends, you ought not to be afraid or dismayed by the attacks of the enemy. Because Christ has already ensured the victory. And one day we will no longer be troubled by the presence of sin and evil. He will put them all under his and by extension our own feet. As Joshua says, thus will he do to all our enemies. And so you, Christian, when you feel the attacks of whatever it is, maybe it is persecution that will come, maybe seduction of the harlot, maybe the deception of the false prophet, when Satan himself, the serpent, is hissing at your heels, remember this, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be dismayed. You can be strong and courageous because Jesus has won and will win a total victory. What else did Joshua do to his enemies? We see here he devotes them all to destruction. In these chapters, as we go on, we see the entire land of Canaan pretty well devoted to destruction, the cities, the kings, north and south, according to God's purpose. We see the comprehensiveness of this destruction as we go on from chapter 10, verse 28 to 43. We see Joshua defeating the cities and kings of southern Canaan, cities like Makeda, Libna, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir are all taken by Joshua. Verse 40 to 43, 
then gives a summary of the comprehensive campaign against southern Canaan. Joshua was able, it says, to conquer all these places in one time, one campaign, because the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 42. And then from chapter 11, 1 to 23, we see Joshua defeating the northern cities and kings, which came against him at the direction of Jabin, this king of Hazor, who gathered all the kings of the north, just like the kings of the south had come against Israel. They gather. Verse 6 says they were a great horde, like the sand of the seashore. But God again encouraged all of them not to be afraid, because he would give them over to him slain. So they all gathered there at Merom, which is northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And Joshua came upon them suddenly with all his warriors, and God gave them into their hands, verse 7 to 8. We read they hamstrung the horses, they burned the chariots, because Israel did not rely on horses and chariots, but rather trusted in the name of the Lord their God, as Psalm 20, verse 7 says. We see them especially destroy and burn the head of all those kingdoms. Hazor, they pay special attention to that in verses 10 to 11. And the rest of the cities and kings, they also devote to destruction in verses 12 to 13. They take spoil from them, but destroy all the people as God commanded. Verse 14 to 15. Verse 16 to 17 is another summary of how they took the south and north, with all its kings. So it says there, so Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, that's in the south, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, that's in the north. And he captured all their kings and struck them, and put them to death. And so this was a comprehensive campaign. The whole land pretty well was conquered at that time. Verse 18 says Joshua made, a war, made war a long time with all those kings. Sometimes we get the impression that this was a very short time, but it says here this took a while. Some estimate even several years for Joshua to conquer all these places. But there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, as verse 19 says, except the Gibeonites, whom we read of in chapter 9. It will go on also in 11.21 and following to speak of the Anakim, the Anakim. These were tall and big people who dwelled in the land of Canaan at first. Um, these were people who terrified the Israelites when they initially spied out the land in Numbers 13, verse 32 to 33. They cried out and they said, we can't go into that land. They're, they're these Anakim, the sons of Anak. They're, they're giants. They're like the Nephilim, which are mentioned in Genesis 6, 4, mighty men of renown, men of old who were there before the time of the flood. They compared and really exaggerated, comparing these men to those Nephilim. And so they didn't go into the wilderness in disobedience, in fear, not trusting the Lord's power. But we see here that Joshua was able to cut off all these Anakim from the places he conquered. There were some left, 
in the Philistine cities, verse 22 says, in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. But even those we read later in the history of Israel, David and his mighty men cut those giant men off. Second Samuel 21, 16 to 22 speaks of this. So this is really a rebuke even to the wilderness generation posthumously, showing that their fears were unwarranted. God was able to conquer even the scariest of their enemies. And so there was no need to fear with the Lord fighting for Israel. Maybe there's one enemy of, of your soul that you fear especially. God has all power over all our enemies. There's no need to be afraid. In chapter 12, we also have a list of all the kings defeated by Israel under Moses and Joshua. They list the two kings, Sihon and Og, who were defeated under Moses, and then 31 kings under Joshua. These were kings east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan. So all the kings of Canaan were conquered by Israel. This was a comprehensive campaign. There were still some Canaanites left in the land, as we will see as we go on. And again, it took a long time for Joshua to conquer these places. But on the whole, it was a comprehensive victory. Only one city, Gibeon, made peace with Israel. The rest they took in battle. Friends, when Christ comes in victory, it will be a comprehensive campaign. Not one enemy of Christ will be left standing. His kingdom is spreading throughout the world now, and he will have dominion surely from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus will come and win against all our enemies. But I want you to note one more thing here in this section, that it was God's purpose to bring these people to destruction. Chapter 11, verse 20. Just hone in there for one moment. It says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. We see here that God's sovereign hand was behind all of this pulling the strings behind the scenes like at a play where there's a moving background and props with changing scenes in order that these enemies of God would be destroyed. This is uh, an interesting concept here, that of hardening hearts, and it's also found in the rest of Scripture. God has power even to further harden people against him in order to bring them to destruction so that they would receive no mercy but rather be vessels of wrath. If they had had soft hearts toward Israel, they would have been like the Gibeonites or Rahab. They, they would have come trembling to the people and sought mercy by any means possible. But it was God's doing to harden the hearts of most of these people. This might be difficult for us to understand. God's sovereignty in relation to the human sin and human responsibility over our own hearts. I want to use an illustration here, the, 
The heart is our inner being. We have to understand that. The central command, as it were, of our lives. It's the center of our thoughts, desires, and will. It's like the rudder of the ship of life. You think of it that way. And if it's soft, well, it means someone can come along. They can turn that rudder. They can guide the ship. If it's hard, you think of a rudder that might get stuck and you can't turn it and so you can't guide the ship. That is what the human heart is like. It can be soft or pliable or it can be hard and stubborn, in which case the rudder is stuck and it won't listen to God. It won't obey God. It won't take direction from God. Scripture speaks of human hearts as hearts of stone by nature. Ezekiel 36, 26 speaks of the work of God turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That is a hard and stubborn heart like that stuck rudder that won't take direction from God to a heart that will respond to God and will obey him. People by nature, we know, are sinners. We don't want to be guided by God. We want to go our own way. And so when people left in their sins encounter God's commands, or God even threatens them with judgment, they still dig in their heels. And that is what we call a further hardening of the heart. This was the condition of the Canaanites. As we see, even way beforehand, these were a a wicked group of people. For 600 years, God told Abraham about these people, 600 years prior to this. And he said their iniquity was not yet full in Genesis 15, 16. They were already an evil people. But by the time of this conquest, as Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 5 says, they were so wicked That's the reason God was bringing Israel into that land to destroy them. Not because of the righteousness of Israel, but because of the wickedness of Canaan. They had repeatedly hardened their hearts against the creator God and devolved into such depravity that we would even read of in Romans chapter 1, where God talks about how he gives people over, over and over again into further depravity. This reminds us perhaps also of the example of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is probably the one you all think of when it comes to hardening one's heart against God. He sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go, but repeatedly we read that he hardened his heart against God. But we also read in those passages that God was hardening his heart. So alongside one another, we see God's sovereignty over his heart, but also his own responsibility and his own sin against Israel and against God. And God says in Exodus 9, 16, that he was doing this in order to show his power in Egypt. And chapter 10, verse 1 of Exodus, he says he was doing this that the Israelites might know that he was the Lord. We have to understand here that God ultimately does all things for his glory. And he is glorified in the judgment of wicked people. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 
as Romans 9 would say. But he is also glorified as he chooses vessels of mercy. He has mercy on whom he wills, rescues them from the judgment that they deserve, and pours out his grace upon them through Jesus Christ. And so these Canaanites received what they deserved, a further hardening and judgment against them. But people like Rahab and the Gibeonites received mercy. And so they had no reason to boast over the Canaanites. They deserved his judgment too. Friends, this is the case with us as well. If God has softened your heart to the gospel and saved you, it is by grace alone. And we are left with nothing to boast over. We boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. But likewise, if you are hardening your heart against Christ now, you are in a dangerous place. And I urge you, as Jesus says, to, to come unto him. Come to Jesus Christ to receive mercy. As he says, all those who come to him, he will never cast out. God's mercy and grace is being made known to us now in this day, this age of grace, before God's judgment comes upon us. And so as John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We have to thank God for his mercy in Christ if we have soft hearts toward him. We see thirdly here, what does he do to his enemies? Joshua takes their land, is what we see third in this passage. Joshua, having crushed their enemies underfoot, devotes them to destruction, and he also takes their land as his people's inheritance and rest. We read this in chapter 11, verse 23. It says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Now, it wasn't as if God was stealing this land from the people. All the earth belongs to him, and so he chose to give his people this land. But this, friends, points us also to the inheritance that we receive if we believe in Christ, if we are co-heirs with him. We see that the people of Israel of old here received that patch of land there in the Near East as their tribal allotments um, directed. But we have an inheritance as well. Romans 4.13 speaks of how Abraham would be heir of the world. Even if you look back at the promises of land made to Abraham, and all the promises made to him, there was a worldwide dimension. He would spread blessing to all nations. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 instructs us that even those Old Testament saints were looking forward to a heavenly city, a heavenly country and homeland, whose builder and founder was God. Revelation 21, 1-2 speaks of this. A new heaven and new earth. 
a heavenly city coming down to earth where God's people will dwell with him forever. Friends, this is the inheritance that Jesus receives on account of his victory. Psalm 2.8 is a prophecy of Christ where the father says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his finished work on the cross and resurrection and his ascension above all, is the heir of all things. As the son of God, he is the rightful firstborn son, as it were, the one who receives the inheritance. And we as believers in Christ are co-heirs with him, Romans 8, 17. We have this inheritance. He shares it with us and it is guaranteed with the down payment of the spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. As children might receive an inheritance from their parents, God gives also his children who are born again by the Spirit an inheritance in Christ. Friends, I want you to turn for just a moment to Isaiah chapter 53 and look at verses 11 to 12. Isaiah 53, you know of a powerful prophecy of Jesus' work on the cross, how we had, like sheep, gone astray, and yet God laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're all sinners. We're all deserving of God's wrath. And yet Jesus came into this world. He died upon the cross as a substitute on our behalf for us in our place, taking our sins upon him, that he would be punished in our place in order that we would be reconciled to God. We can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We can be justified, accounted righteous, declared innocent in his holy sight through this work of Christ on the cross. It says in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offering himself for the guilt of his people. But then you see in verse 11 to 12, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this is Jesus Christ spreading out the spoil, the plunder that he receives through his victorious work on the cross, even to us, his people who are called here the many and the strong, though we have no strength in and of ourselves he makes us strong. He makes us conquerors. He makes us inheritors of the whole earth, which are rightfully his. Jesus Christ, in his great love, has come to us by his grace, saved us from the wrath that is to come, and he shares with us 
this eternal inheritance. Now back in Joshua chapter 11, it said, the land had rest from war there. And Christians also have an everlasting rest to look forward to. As we've gone through Joshua, we see that there's, there's a warfare that we're in, right? We are in the good fight of the faith. We have to keep our armor on, even at night, even to the end of our lives as Christians. There's no time where we're freed from the assaults of sin and the world and the devil. We will be persecuted if we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. There will be sufferings in this present life. And maybe you're groaning under those today. But this is an encouragement to us that one day, friends, there will be rest from war. The conquest will be over. As John Bunyan said, the Antichrist will meet his ruin. Christ will return. We will be with Christ in paradise. All his enemies, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot will be cast into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Just like, friends, after a day of hard work out in your workplace or out in the field, you can come home to rest in the evening. After this present day is over, this age that we're in, we will have rest from labor and we will we'll be blessed as we enter into that. And so we have need of endurance and perseverance just for a little time until we get home, until we have rest from war. Friends, as it would have been a shame for the allies to give up the fight after D-Day and let the enemy conquer, we also must keep trudging ahead knowing the decisive battle has been won by Jesus Christ at the cross and we will surely enter in. Thus will God do to all our enemies. And so we labor on in weakness and rejoicing, knowing Christ gives the victory. As Matt Papa has written recently, don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No stopping now. We're almost home. So may God our Father, through Christ our Lord, grant you all endurance and patience with joy as you look forward to the coming victory. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for the grace that you've poured out upon us, Lord. We, we would die under your wrath had it not been for Jesus Christ and the victory of the cross, Lord. And so we praise you. God, we thank you for our loving Savior. God, we ask that you would, by your strength within us, by your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, help us, Lord, to keep in the fight, God, until this final victory that we see prophesied in Scripture. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.